couple of weeks back, I read the following headline or heading, I don't remember whether it was a headline or a heading, it was one or the other, uh, in a magazine. And the heading or headline read, Can a person reverse their cellular age? Can a person reverse their cellular age? Now we know it's not talking about reversing the age of your cell phone. Like, can a person reverse the age of their cell phone? Not that anybody would want to do that. Why would you want to go from having a newer cell phone to an older cell phone? Maybe you would for whatever reason. But this was talking about um, a person's biological age. Can a person reverse their biological age? Now, for some, maybe not for all, but for some people, that would be a headline that would provoke curiosity. You might start thinking, well, what are the implications of that, right? So if my cells right now are however old, they're like 50 years old, and I'm however old, let's say 40 years old, wow, is there a way to get my cells back down to 40 years old or to 35 years old? Does that mean I'm going to be able to empower my mitochondria that is weak and failing or grow new mitochondria? Can I lengthen telomeres on my chromosomes? You can start wondering about things like this and the implications of that, and then you might want to read the article. That's kind of the point, a lot of times, of those kinds of questions that are found either in magazines or headings. There's a question, it's meant to grab your attention and provoke curiosity, and then you pursue finding out what that article and what that writer has to say and so on. I find it interesting that questions can do that. Provoke attention, provoke curiosity, and interestingly enough, we have questions before us in the opening verse of today's song. How about these questions? For example... Who may abide in God's tabernacle? (laughs) Who may dwell in his holy hill? These are questions every person should be asking. Those questions, immediately, if you didn't see verses 2 through 5 ahead of you, immediately you should be wondering in your mind, what is the answer to that? The Spirit of God has has led for that to be written. Verse 1, this is a question and answer kind of psalm as it's often noted to be. It's a QA, and a if you will. The question is posed in verse 1, the answer is posed in the verses that follow, verses 2 through 5. And immediately upon hearing the question, who's going to abide in God's tent or tabernacle? Who is going to dwell in His holy hill? Our curiosity should be provoked to see how the Spirit of God answers that question in the text that is before us. And we will do that shortly. There are some places in Scripture where you see a kind of Q&A like this happen. A little bit later on in the Psalter, in Psalm 24, we see this in the middle of a psalm. Basically in verses uh, 3 and 4 of Psalm 24. You might include verse 5 in that as well, but verse 3 and 4 come to my mind more specifically. You see this kind of thing in Isaiah 33, verses 14 through 16 as well. Now there are different suggestions as to how this question and answer psalm was used within its original historical context. Some suggest that it could be or could have been an entrance liturgy where the priest would use this psalm as a kind of summation of the prerequisites for participating in worship in and around the sanctuary. Some suggest, well, it was a a liturgical reading. That was one way in which um, commentators have proposed the psalm was used. Uh, interestingly enough, in this uh, superscript, we don't see anything of like it being given to the choir master, though we shouldn't doubt that it was sung by the people of Israel nonetheless. It could have been, as some suppose, a, a covenant renewal psalm or used that way, a wisdom psalm, a psalm sung within the context of a pilgrimage where the pilgrims, upon making their way to the tabernacle for one of the annual feasts, would be asked this opening question in Psalm 15, verse 1, so as to provoke a kind of rightness of heart. 
repentance, perhaps, for those who didn't meet the qualifications in the way that they ought to have had met them leading up to this uh, time of the pilgrimage for them. Now, regardless of the way or ways in which this psalm was used, we know this. It was meant to instruct the people of God. And doubtless, it's meant to provoke humility and remind worshipers of their responsibility. Now, with that being said, I want to say something really important, extremely important, before we get into the text of this psalm. I think if we are going to read this psalm rightly, we first need to see our disqualification. I think we need to see that. And then our responsibility in light of grace-granted qualification. I'll say that again. If we're going to read this psalm rightly, Psalm 15, verses 1 through 5, we first have to see our disqualification. I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. And then subsequently, we need to see our grace-granted responsibility in light of our qualification. So, let me explain. First, as you know, God demands perfection. Our failure to meet the positive and negative requirements of this psalm would ban us and bar us from God's presence. One sin would be enough to exclude us from God's presence. So if we're going to read this psalm rightly, we need to know God demands perfection. And when we read through the psalm, we don't say, oh, checklist, I've done all these things rightly all the days of my life. We say, no, uh uh-oh, I'm disqualified. I can't dwell in God's holy tent. I can't abide in his holy hill. I'm I'm disqualified. Why? Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. We know that Jesus said at that point in the Sermon on the Mount, therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. To fail at any point in keeping the law of God is to become a lawbreaker. James chapter 2, verse 9. So if you fail to keep one point of the law, right, you're guilty of it all. Now, that doesn't mean you've, you've committed every sin within the law. So you've you know, itemized and went through and you've committed you know, adultery because you've committed murder and so on. But the whole law hangs together as a whole. And to sin against the law is to become a lawbreaker. And it's to sin against the lawgiver. And it's a very serious thing. This psalm, you could say, helps us see why 2 Corinthians 5.21 was and is necessary. That He, the Father, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So if you're going to see this psalm rightly, then you know the only reason why you can dwell in Yahweh's tent and on His holy hill is because the Son of God was the Lamb of God who stood in your place dying for your sins so that you might be able to dwell in the Father's house where there are many oikos, many dwelling places forever. Does that make sense? So when you read through the psalm, you you, you want to feel a sense of humility provoked by the question and answer, um, answers that you see. But then we need to see where our qualification comes in and our responsibilities in light of our qualification. I use that language in light of the language that's found in Colossians chapter 1, verse 12. There, Paul, Paul told the Colossians that they were made to be qualified, qualified to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. So we were once, if you will, disqualified. We were outside of the kingdom. But now, by the grace of God, through the work of Christ, through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, we have been qualified. We have been brought into the kingdom of the Son of God. And now, we have responsibility to walk 
in his precepts. Now, of course, that responsibility is there before, but now there's an empowerment that accompanies the responsibility, namely via the person of the Holy Spirit. So this psalm uh, is a good reminder to us that Christians have a responsibility to keep God's commands, not out of legalism, but out of love. Um, Calvin noted that this psalm is a psalm that expresses, quote, in a few words, that those only have access to God who are his genuine servants and who live a holy life, end quote. To live that holy life, to be a genuine servant, is to demonstrate the reality of true saving faith. Now, we'll get into that. We'll see both of those dynamics at work as we go through the psalm. But we begin in Psalm 15, verse 1, where we read, Lord, or Yahweh, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Now, in both lines of this opening verse, we see the interrogative pronoun, who? Who? This song is essentially asking the question, what kind of person gets to enter into God's presence and enjoy his fellowship? To use language from one commentator, Willem van Gemmeren. Next, we would do well to note that this was written during the time of the Old Testament, during the time of the Old Covenant time, uh, where God's presence was to be found in a unique way on Mount Zion, right? Where the tabernacle was and where the the tabernacle went, then God's presence was to be found there. But eventually, the tabernacle would make its way to Mount Zion. We remember David bringing the tabernacle back there. And such was the aim that we see in 2 Samuel chapter 6, that the tabernacle was to be brought and eventually it would be upon Mount Zion where the temple would be built subsequently. But it's important for us to remember that When Jesus spoke to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, when location was like a really big issue, and she was like, well, you know, my people think that you're going to, we worship at Mount Gerizim, and the Jews, they think to worship on Jerusalem, and Jesus was saying the time has now come, and yet is, essentially that it's not about this mountain or that mountain. Any person who, by the grace of God, through the Spirit of God, believes the gospel has access to worship wherever they are, in spirit and in truth. But understanding the context and the imagery helps us to understand what this psalm is teaching. I think Derek Kidner put it well, kind of looking at the words used here. He said, the word tent conjures up two worlds. One of formal worship and sacrifice, you could reference Exodus 29.42, emphasized by the phrase, thy holy hill, and the other of simple hospitality brought out by the words sojourn and dwell. The psalms often mingle the two ideas, seeing the worshiper as an eager guest His pilgrimage, a homecoming. So you can kind of see verse 1 doing all of that. Who will abide in the Lord's tabernacle? That word there could be tent, understood as tent. Who may dwell in His holy hill? And remember, the reason why Mount Zion was holy wasn't because it was intrinsically holy. It was holy because God set it apart. That it would be a place where He would manifest His presence to the people in a very unique way. So that's the question posed in the opening verse. Now let's see how the psalm answers that question. It begins in verse 2. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. So who's going to have access to this kind of communion with the Lord into his presence and into his fellowship? Well, verse 2 begins by saying, he who walks uprightly. The word walks connotes manner of life. 
It connotes imagery, as one commentator said, of life's journey as a walk on a path, reminiscent of the pervasive teaching in the book of Proverbs about the straight path that leads to life as opposed to the crooked path that leads to death. So the psalm is saying that the person who dwells in God's presence, it's the person whose manner of life, the way that they live, is upright. It is upright. Now the Hebrew word for upright that's used here could be understood as blameless or complete or without spot. It's often used with respect to the sacrifices in the, um, in the Torah. Uh, this word is used to describe Jonah, I mean Noah. Noah is described as being blameless in his time. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. It's used to describe Job in Job chapter 1, verse 1. It was how God called Abram to walk. God told Abram to walk in this way, blameless, upright, and complete before him in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. It's repeatedly used, as I noted, in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers to speak of how animal sacrifices were to be without blemish. The word was even used to speak of God's ways. His work is perfect or blameless or complete. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. Now, to be sure, man's way and behavior cannot be perfect like Yahweh's work is perfect. But the idea is that such a person's manner of life is to be marked by integrity and uprightness. Now, two additional things I want, I want to note before moving on. I love the way Psalm 84 connects this responsibility of the worshiper with the soil from which it springs, namely trust and faith. Psalm 84 says, and speaks of those who walk uprightly. If you were to look at Psalm 84, then you'd see in verse 11, it speaks of those who walk uprightly. And in the following verse we read, O Yahweh of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. It's just worth noting the connection there. The one who trusts in Yahweh is the one who ends up from that soil bearing the fruit of an upright walk. Bearing the fruit of an upright walk. Second, and we can see this repeatedly throughout this psalm, this isn't just an expectation of, it wasn't just an expectation of Old Testament worshipers. This is an expectation of New Testament Christians. If you are a Christian, you are commanded to live blamelessly. It's not just pastors who are told in places like 1 Timothy chapter 3 to live blameless. It's Christians in places like Philippians 2 that are called to live blameless lives in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So who is the person who dwells in God's presence and abides in His tent? Well, it's the one who, having been made by God righteous, ends up walking in that very righteousness. One who is saved by grace through faith ends up bearing this kind of fruit. Now, the second line is a fitting consequence of the first. And works righteousness... So a necessary component of an upright life is right action. Now I want to note this, because some people are probably already having the allergy attack that I'm going to describe even now. Some Christians have a kind of allergy when they hear the word works too often without like an extensive qualification. Like, you said works way too many times without explaining that you're not saved by works, you're saved by grace. Christians have like an allergy when they start hearing works mentioned without like a qualifier after every verse. Let me just remind you. You read through the Gospels. You read through the New Testament. Clearly teaches that we're saved by faith. But the Bible doesn't do that every time. 
Right? You look at Jesus' language and the strong language that's used, and I'm all for clarifying things so that people don't get confused. But what happens sometimes in our Christian culture is that the pendulum swings so far sometimes. And by God's grace, I don't think it's the case here, but nonetheless, you've got to be careful. Because sometimes there could be such an emphasis, appropriately placed, on salvation by grace through faith, that there comes an underemphasis on the importance of walking rightly and doing good works and bearing fruit. Please make no mistake. It's more important than I could do justice to in a brief amount of time. If you are a Christian, you will have good works that illustrate your Christianity. Make no mistake. Faith without works is dead. As the body without the spirit is dead, faith without works is dead. Jesus purified us so that we might be his own people. You see this kind of language at the end of Titus 2. And that we might be zealous for good works. I mean, there were zealots during the time of Jesus who were zealous for the overthrow of Rome. But Christ's people are to be zealous for good works. Paul told Titus that we must be careful to maintain that our people do good works. It's part of a pastor's responsibility to kind of urge that. 1 John in 1 John chapter um, 3, verse 7, we read, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. It's interesting, when you get to the end of the canon of Scripture, in Revelation 19, um, you see that the fine linen that the bride of Christ is arrayed with, is described as being the good works of the saints or the righteous deeds of the saints. Um, we should be, by the grace of God, adorning ourselves with good works in the here and now. I like how Spurgeon put it when he said, God's house is a hive for workers, not a nest for drones. Look, it's, it's important to be those who um, hear the word of God, of course. It's important to be those who talk and talk about the Word of God, of course. But we must also make sure that by the grace of God, we are growing in the grace of being doers of the Word, right? I think sometimes there could be those who would just say, if I've heard and if I've talked, I've done enough. Hearing is part of it. Talking about the Word of God is part of it. But then you want to do a lot of good, and it's not limited just to that. We're going to see some examples of the good that we can do and the bad that we ought not to do as we go through this psalm. Um, Jesus said, and so I say we join the Savior who said, My Father is working until now, and I am working. John chapter 5, verse 17, that's the ESV. So all I'm saying, the reason why I'm just making that, because uh, I want to be careful, I want us to be rightly balanced. We're all about the gospel. But at the same time, we want to say the Scripture over and over again, whether it's in a psalm like this or whether it's in many New Testament passages, urges the Christian to works not for salvation, but as an outworking, as a legitimate evidence of their sanctification. Does that make sense? Well, the last line of verse 2 reads, And speaks the truth in his heart. And speaks the truth in his heart. So an upright life is joined to upright speech. A life of integrity is going to be a life in which there is integrity of speech. So the upright man or woman is not like those described in Psalm 12 too. Remember in Psalm 12 too, we saw those who speak with a double heart, like with their words, they show one kind of heart, but really inside they have another kind of heart. This kind of person is the opposite. 
they speak the truth in their heart. And what comes out of their lips is a reflection of what's really in their heart. So there's integrity. There's consistency. There's not duplicity. Um, There is no guile, no hidden agenda, no half-truths, to use language from uh, one commentator, in the speech of a blameless person. Uh, Such a one speaks truly and sincerely. The words they speak out loud correspond to the thoughts and the feelings that are in their hearts. There's a consistency between what they really feel and what they say. So if you ever find that there's a little bit of a divide between what you're saying and how you really feel, be careful. You kind of want to nip that in the bud. Maybe you start saying something, you're like, God, to nuance that, then, then nuance that. So that there might be integrity in your speech that lines up with how you feel in your heart. And again, and you all know this, um, this isn't foreign to New Testament requirements for a believer either. In the New Testament, we're expected to speak truth in love. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. We are told to put away lying in whatever form it may take. Right? Lying can take the form in a, in, in a bunch of ways. Exaggerations can be a form of lying. Cheating can be a form of lying. False excuses, right? I would do this, but... And then you make up some false excuse. That's not really why you can't do it. Like, you want to put away all falsehood. Put away all falsehood and speak the truth to your neighbor. It's drawing on language from Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16. But it's found in Ephesians 4.25 as well. We want to follow the example of the Apostle Paul, which we're told to. right? Paul said, imitate me even as I imitate Christ, when writing to the church of Corinth. He told the Philippians, right, brethren, join in following my example. And part of the example of the Apostle Paul, you can see in a place like 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, is that he spoke with sincerity in his fellow co-workers in the sight of God. He wasn't like those who peddled the word of God and had motives that were hidden uh, that they couldn't see. He spoke the truth in sincerity. Now, having seen what the upright person does, we now move to consider three things that he does not do. In verse 3 we read, He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. So we see that the upright person is one who is going to use their tongue carefully with respect to others. They're watching how they speak. They're watching how they speak about others. First, first description, he who does not backbite with his tongue. This essentially speaks of someone who does not slander another person. So the upright person is not a gossip. Uh, William Barrick notes that the Hebrew word that's used here is related to um, two words, leg and spy. So that this refers to someone who walks around seeking like, tidbits of gossip that he or she might pass on to someone else. So that's not what the upright person does. Such people behave as spies or conspirators, trafficking in information that tears someone else down to um, finish his thinking there. This refers to someone who is going to be so careful with their words that they don't want to pull down the reputation or the character of somebody else with how they speak. New Testament Christians, likewise, are warned against being slanderers via the fact that slanderers are described as Um, Part of the grouping, within the grouping of those who will characterize the last days, the evil actions that would characterize the last days in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, um, describes a whole bunch of individuals that would characterize the last days, one of which uh, description is slanders, slanderers. In the second line of verse 3, we read, nor does evil to his neighbor. 
So here we kind of see a kind of general statement. He's just a person that doesn't do harm to somebody else. That, that's the idea. So it's somebody who's going to be building up others, helping others. He does not do evil. He does not call, cause harm. He does not cause pain to somebody else. Proverbs 27, 6, notwithstanding. You know, there's a place to speak truth that would hurt. You know, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So when this is talking about harm here or evil done to a neighbor, it's not saying that somebody will never speak the truth because that might upset somebody and you don't want to upset somebody. No, the idea is that the upright person, they're just not going to be the kind of person that causes harm to somebody else. Not that they're going to perfectly keep that all the days of their lives, but they're more marked by being the kind of person that does not cause harm to somebody else. And if you were to ask, um, who is this person's neighbor, nor does evil to his neighbor? Well, in light of the possible parallelism with the end of verse 3, it could be a friend, right? So you could see that. But remember, Jesus is teaching in the Good Samaritan parable in uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. It's anyone that's basically in need or anyone that the upright person has an opportunity to help. So this person, the upright person, is not going to do evil to his neighbor. The New Testament Christian knows not to speak things unless they are good for the building up of hearers. So you see the kind of congruence between the expectations of an Old Testament worshiper and the expectations of a New Testament Christian by way of ethical morality in this psalm. A lot of parallels. The last line of verse 3 reads, Nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. Now, at first glance, this statement could be hard to discern, and if you go through the different translations, you could see that it could be hard to discern. Uh, the issue is really with the word, take up a reproach, those words in our English translation. So, nor does he take up a reproach. A reproach could be a taunt or a sharp criticism. It could be a scorn. It could be read in one of two ways. It could be speaking of casting a slur upon someone else. And that would kind of reinforce what we've seen in the previous lines of this verse. Or it's speaking about taking up a reproach as rendered in this translation. And I think that is the idea of what's going on. It's speaking of a person who does not receive a scorn or a reproach against someone else. So whereas earlier we saw that the upright one does not backbite, you might say in part of uh, what's being taught here in verse 3, the last line, is that the upright one does not receive the backbiting of someone else. So you don't want to say like, hey, if I'm not doing the backbiting, no problem. But I could hear backbiting. You're not supposed to hear the backbiting. If you hear the backbiting, try to cut off the backbiting. You don't want to speak slander, you don't want to receive slander, you don't want to take up a reproach. Again, that language, when you look at the word how it's used oftentimes in the Old Testament, has a lot of picking something up and carrying it, right? So you don't want to do that in the sense of being the one to initiate this kind of thing and talking about somebody else in a slanderous way, but you also don't want to take it up in the sense of receiving it if somebody else is saying it. John Trapp, um, I think, put it well when he said, the talebearer carrieth the devil in his tongue, and the tale hearer carrieth the devil in his ear. Now, of course, he's speaking in hyperbolic language, but you get the idea. It's very strong language, but it's meant to connote the seriousness of that. Think of how the devil is described, right? That the way the devil is described repeatedly in the New Testament is with the same word that's used to speak of the slanderer. The devil is identified as a slanderer. And so we don't want to entertain gossip or slander, and we don't want to speak gossip or slander. You know, Proverbs says, the words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to the inmost parts. 
It's one of those Proverbs that's repeated in the book of Proverbs. Like if you miss it in chapter 18, you get to see it again in Proverbs 26. I, I would look at it this way. I don't know, I don't know about you, but um, when I was younger, one of my grandparents, I think it was like in, the, in front of her house or behind her house, there was a, um, a bush that had like these nice berries. So they looked like nice berries. They might not have been poisonous. I don't know if they were poisonous. But I just remember hearing as a kid that either they were or they might be. And so although they looked so nice, and they really did, and you've, you probably know this, and many of you probably know how to discern a poisonous berry from a non-poisonous berry. I did not know then. I still do not know how to discern it now. But I do know what it feels like to look at the berry and say, that looks really good, and I would like to eat that. And in our fallen frames, you and I may feel like that at a given point or another when slander or gossip comes our way. But think of it as a poison berry. You don't want that going down in you. Stay away from it. Don't speak it. Don't receive it. I would say, just by way of pastoral advice here and counsel, embrace the awkward. Sometimes it could be uh, tempting to be so polite that you don't cut it off in the moment, right? You're like, okay. You know, and then you try, to, you, you try not to say anything. But I would say this. I think you can help a brother or sister to say, you know what? This might be. And if it is, if you're not sure, don't say it might be if it is. <laughs> you can say this is. We shouldn't be doing this. I don't want to hear it. You shouldn't be saying it. You know, um, embrace the awkward. That makes for a healthy church, by the way. When you have a lot of people in a church who think like that and say, oh, I'm not going to entertain this, and I have no reason to think that slander is happening among us, so thanks be to God for the health um, that's here in this church. But when you have a whole bunch of people that think like this and are willing to embrace the awkward if slander happens, it keeps a church healthy. And it keeps um, bad things from getting in and spreading like Um, like leaven throughout the flock. Now, we get to verse 4. In verse 4 we read, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord or fear Yahweh. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. The first two lines of verse 4 speak to the discernment that the upright man or woman exercises. He or she has spiritual discernment. He doesn't look at the vile person and place them in a position of esteem, right? In like an old covenant context, right, you wouldn't have like a Jewish person who was that upright person who had like whatever the equivalent of posters would be, like up in the room of Absalom and Doeg the Edomite. Like these guys are amazing. You see the power with which Doeg can exercise his strength upon measly priests. And you see the way Absalom can take a kingdom by his craftiness. No, they don't celebrate those kind of individuals. And as Christians, we shouldn't be looking at those in the world who despise the name of Christ and blaspheme the name of Christ or disregard the name of Christ but are successful in some way and hold them up as though they are to be esteemed and honored. No, people can do things that are worthy of Um, you know, some measure of acclaim, but at the same time, we want to be those who know that even as God looks at a vile person, uh, who's a vile person? A vile person, that language would speak of somebody who's a determined rebel. Might use it of one who's a a reprobate. Uh, Per the, the contrast here, and you look at the second line, it's one who doesn't fear the Lord. That would be kind of the opposite of um, the one who is to be honored. So a vile person is a determined rebel. It's a person who doesn't honor the Lord. In whose eyes a vile person is despised. Despised. Maybe better rendered as rejected or treated lightly. In other words, again, 
contrasting it with the second line of verse 4, honoring those who fear the Lord, despised in the first line, speaks of treating lightly or saying, um, I don't esteem that. That's actually reprehensible behavior as opposed to behavior that is to be honored and celebrated. Um, In the second line we read, but he honors those who fear Yahweh. So again, this most immediately speaks of spiritual discernment. He knows the kind of individuals that are to be honored and are not to be honored. But I do think it's worth noting the kind of individual that this upright person is. He doesn't look at those who fear the Lord and is not jealous of them. He's not trying to like compare spiritual credentials. Like, oh, if I honor them, I might exalt them above myself or so on. No, he honors those who fear the Lord. He gives honor to whom honor is due. And if somebody fears the Lord and has a character that illustrates that great work of the Spirit of God, then he's going to esteem that. He's going to hold that up. Maybe a good example, Derek Kidner brought this up in his commentary. Um, A good example would be seeing how Abram treated the king of Sodom versus how he treated Melchizedek. And I think that was a great uh, great analogy. So you see Abram do that um, in Genesis 15, I believe. Or 14, 14. The last line of verse 4 reads, He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who swears to his own hurt. Now that would be like the opposite of Jephthah and Herod. Like they made swears, oaths, and the responsibility or the pain for those oaths would fall on under other individuals than themselves. But this person swears an oath swears to his own hurt. In other words, especially within that Old Covenant context, the consequences would fall on him. So you get the idea that he was true to his own word, he makes the commitment, and he nonetheless keeps it. But again, the responsibility falls on him. He wasn't like making some commitment. And if I don't keep my commitment, then somebody else is going to pay the price in some way or another. No, no. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. I think New Testament application for us would be found in Matthew 5 and in James chapter 5, where Jesus is speaking there to his people about having consistency in their speech. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't have to say to somebody, I promise, I promise, I promise I'll do this. You shouldn't. Your word should be good enough. And again, same language basically that's used in Matthew 5 and James 5. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. You're consistent with your speech and you keep your word. That brings us to the last line of this, uh, last verse of this psalm. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Now the first line, he does not put out his money at usury, speaks of charging interest on a loan. So he doesn't charge interest on a loan. Interestingly, the words here at usury can literally be rendered with a bite. With a bite. Um, This speaks to why certain individuals who did lend, even in that old covenant context, um, would be condemned because they would lend with a bite. What do you mean with a bite? Well, I'll explain some of the verses from which I'm getting this, um, but then I'll just kind of give you this illustration. Imagine if there was a fellow Israelite who had a hard time, had a bad season. Um, by way of the development and the growth of his agriculture. But you happen to be in a position where you can give that Israelite a loan and you charge him 50% interest. That's a loan with a bite. 
So that Israelite was in a desperate place, and then you see it as an opportunity to increase your gains. Now we see in the Old Testament that um, the Israelites could lend to foreigners with interest, but then we see some statements where it's mentioned that you shall not lend with interest to your fellow Israelites. So Jewish people had to be careful not to do that. That may that prohibition may be nuanced by other texts within the Mosaic Law, like Exodus 22, verse 25, where it says, If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to them. You shall not charge them interest. Notice how the poor are referenced in that verse. Because oftentimes they would be the ones who would be taken advantage of. Again, in Leviticus 25, verses 35 and 36, if one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him. That's the idea of somebody falling on hard times. You shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. Kind of big picture here. The upright man is not greedy for gain. The upright man does not take advantage of people who have fallen on hard times. He shows care and regard for the poor. He's somebody who gives to those who are in need. He's generous. The second line of verse 5 reads, Nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. The poor could often be taken advantage of by the rich. The rich had resources, so the rich could take the poor to court. This is maybe what's going on in a little bit of the background of James chapter 2. The, poor, the rich could take the poor to court, and then because they have a lot of money, they could pay off the judge, and the judge then would take the bribe, and justice would become injustice. Um, here, however, we see that the upright person does not take a bribe against the innocent. The upright man is not party to the perversion of justice. He, on the other hand, contributes to the preservation of it. Now the last line of this psalm closes with a note of blessed assurance. He who does these things shall never be moved. Shall never be moved. You say, moved from where? Well, you, you'll look in the psalms and you'll see this language about being moved. And sometimes it talks about temporal stability. Sometimes it's, it transcends that. Um, the idea, I think, within the context of this psalm is that such a one won't stumble, won't drift, but will be the kind of person that will abide in Yahweh's presence. They will illustrate themselves to truly have been Yahweh's person, Yahweh's worshiper. And again, this is reminiscent. This could sound strange to New Testament ears, New Covenant ears, but again, it's the kind of language that we hear in the New Testament as well. Think of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Now, who is Jesus speaking of here? Whoever hears these sayings of mine implication, though not stated, is believes them. But he says, he who hears these things of mine and does them, I will be like a wise man. I think, I think a great parallel to this, probably my favorite parallel to this entire psalm, is what we see in 2 Peter chapter 1. In 2 Peter chapter 1, I want to read this to you as I get ready to close, um, because I think it's helpful for you to say, 
to, to see how I think we are to see this psalm as New Testament Christians. This is a psalm, to use language from Dr. Barak, it's a psalm that's not about salvation, it's about sanctification. I think the idea of this psalm, if you're going to see it through a lens of salvation, then it's reminding you that you don't meet this standard in and of yourself. That's why you need a Savior. Because any one of us could look at this psalm and we could find places in which we have fallen short. More about that when I close. But this psalm, if you're going to apply this rightly as a New Testament Christian, I think the aim is, having been made qualified through the work of Christ, having become a new creation in Christ with a new heart and new desires, you now live this way. You hear this and you're like, yes, that's what I want to do. That's who I am. That's what I want. And I think a great way to um, parallel this in the New Testament is found in um, 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, so it starts there, in your faith. Some renderings, I believe, say to your faith. Add to your faith. So faith is the foundation. Moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Sounds a lot like the end of Psalm 15, verse 5. He who does these things shall never be moved, won't stumble. So I think this is a good reminder for us, everyone. A good reminder to be zealous for good works. To do a little introspection as we look at the psalm and say, are there ways in which I need to grow in these graces? Doubtless there are. I need to walk uprightly. I need to speak the truth in my heart. I need to make sure my words are consistent with what's in my heart. I need to act and do works of righteousness. I need to not backbite my neighbor with my tongue. I don't want to do evil to my neighbor. I want to do good to my neighbor. I don't want to take up a reproach against a friend. I don't want to speak a reproach. I don't want to receive a reproach. I want to make sure I'm discerning things rightly so I'm esteeming those who ought to be esteemed and I am not esteeming those who ought not to be esteemed. I want to make sure that I keep my commitments and I keep my word. I want to make sure that I'm not greedy for gain but I am somebody who is generous and helpful towards others and I want to be somebody who doesn't pervert justice in one way or another whether it's in my home or in my land. I want to be somebody who works towards the preservation of what's right. So there's a lot of application for us as New Testament Christians. I would encourage you, even as I get ready to pray, to think of how God might have, through this text, put his finger on certain ways in which um, there needs to be more consistency in our lives. And I want to just remind us, because it all starts here. It all starts here. If you have the opportunity, by God's grace, to walk in these things, it's only because the grace of God. It's only because by the grace of God you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's it. This psalm is a great reminder of why we need a Savior. Because you and I have not walked uprightly all the days of our lives. We have sinned. You and I have not kept our words. Every time that we've said we're going to do something, want to feel quickly condemned, 
Have you ever said that you were going to do something and you didn't do it? I cringe to think how many times I've done that. And this psalm it can help you see your guilt and help you see your need for a Savior. Because if you are going to stand in God's presence now and forever, to use language from Psalm 23, verse 6, if you are going to dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of your life, in your eternal life, it has to come because you've seen that you're a sinner and that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the only Savior. You receive Him as Savior by the grace of God. You believe the Gospel by the grace of God. And then you will abide in Yahweh's house. Not a kind of temporary stay in Jerusalem at Mount Zion, but a forever stay in Jesus' Father's house where there are many dwelling places. So if you haven't come to that place, may today be the day when you say, I know the only way I could dwell in Yahweh's presence. Remember earlier, I forget what psalm it is off the top of my head, but earlier we saw uh, the psalmist say, Evil shall not dwell with you. So any man or woman who has not been cleansed of his sins or her sins will not dwell in Yahweh's presence. But anyone who has come to the Lord Jesus Christ and believed the gospel will abide in the house of Yahweh and in God's presence forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, Thank you for texts like this where we get to be reminded of who we are called to be and the responsibilities that we have, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that you have given to us all that we need that pertains to life and godliness. I thank you, Lord, that we were dead, but we've been made alive by your grace and we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. And that although we still sin and although we are um, not perfectly upright, we can thank you that we are new creations in Christ that we were slaves of unrighteousness, but have become slaves of righteousness. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to walk in our identities as new creations in Christ. Help us from a place of joy, Lord, from a place of joy and excitement and anticipation to zealously look for those good works that you would have us to do. Oh, oh the joy that should come to our hearts and minds of, as, as we please you and as we help someone else, Lord. Help us to be consistent with our speech. Help us to be uh, generous and on guard against greed. Help us, Heavenly Father, to discern rightly. Help us to do these things and to do the things that Peter wrote of in 2 Peter chapter 1. And Father, by your grace, may we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And may we look less like our old selves and more like Him. We ask these things, Father, for your glory and for the good of others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.